Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. This week, my guests and I are discussing the first Psycho sequel, that being director Richard Franklin's American film debut, 1983's Psycho 2. Written by Franklin and co-written by Tom Holland of Fright Night and Child's Play fame, Psycho 2 picks up 22 years after the original film with Norman being released from a psychiatric facility. Anthony Perkins reprises his defining role as Norman returns to his old stomping grounds, the infamous Bates Motel, and attempts to reintegrate into society. However, despite his best intentions and a budding new friendship with co-worker Mary, played by Meg Tilly, Bates begins experiencing strange events that coincide with the various bodies that begin piling up at the motel. In joining me to chat psychological slasher sequels, Psycho's Legacy, and Mommy Issues, is returning friend of the show and the very funny host of the Nuclear Fridge podcast, my pal Ethan Paget. Oh, Welcome back to the show, man. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Uh, so, as as I've told you before, you get to call me Matt. Um, it's a very exclusive club. I'm an asshole <laughs> that decided everyone I don't like has to call me a different name. Um, well, I'm honored to uh, <laughs> to be able to call you that. Yeah, you know, it's something I'm trying. We'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, I had a bit of a like midlife crisis at 30 and i'm i'm kind of like i don't i i I, I always felt weird about my names you know matt paget i'm sure i'm sure no one but me thinks about this but matt paget it's like it's snappy but it's also like i don't know it feels unprofessional my parents straddled me with a single t which I, i prefer but it's weird so it's it's something i'm trying out and ethan's my middle name so i said why not oh there you go well funny enough you're not the first person that i've encountered that has uh taken on a new name with a similar type of thing they did it with the last name you're doing it with the first name but um it's the type of thing where you know you described it as a midlife crisis that's a probably uh as you know as uh, smooth of a midlife crisis as somebody could have, if that's what you're, you know, doing, oh, considering I, I, <laughs> some of the other midlife crises out there that I've heard of. You know what? Uh, let let's let's yeah, sure. If it looks smooth from the outside, we'll we'll call it smooth. Uh, <laughs> stewing in my own sanity here. Um, so I decided, hey, you know what? I'm having a fucking identity crisis. Why don't we talk about a guy who has an identity crisis? It's very fitting for our conversation today. Uh, and I'm so I'm curious, you know, before having, you know, touch base about what you wanted to chat about in terms of the Psycho sequels, have you seen the other sequels um, or was yeah. this like a first two, a first time watch of the second one for you? Yeah. So I've seen, um, I mean, I've, I've seen this movie a lot. Um, I've seen the sequels to, uh, well, okay. I've, I'm, I've seen the sequels to the sequel. I've seen Psycho 3 and, and then I've seen Psycho 4, which ignores 2 and 3. Um, and, uh, I, I love Psycho 2, um, and I tentatively love the other ones, mostly because they're just Tony Perkins and it's Psycho, not for the actual, like, quality of those movies. Um, Psycho 3 is a very, 
um, stylish movie. It's it's directed by Tony Perkins. Um, I believe the he made like the entire cast and crew watch Blood Simple, uh, the mm. Coen Brothers debut before making it, um, which is so cool. Like it's just it's like oh man, like it wasn't like he's like hey you know this this filmmaker with all this history with the Big Lebowski and Raising Arizona. It was just like hey I really like this new filmmaker. Uh, and I want you to watch their movie and it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's not, I don't think it's a great movie. Um, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit rough around the edges. Um, and Psycho 4 is very weird, uh, and funny, um, in, <laughs> in the psycho part of it, in my opinion, uh, for people who don't know, do you mind if I say why he's psycho in Psycho Four? Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. So okay. I was just kind You're of I was just trying to gauge your um, sort of, I suppose, appreciation or just enjoyment of the series as a whole uh, to kind of highlight, I suppose, why you wanted to chat about Psycho Two, why that was the sequel that you picked. Because I'm, as usual, playing catch up on a lot of these later sequels to series. Like I just finished up a Phantasm series review, and I'd only seen the original, and then took the time to go through the entire series. And that was very eye-opening in terms of just being able to appreciate a director specifically for that series, you know, that having the director uh, reprise their role for, you know, the first four films and just seeing somebody's creativity sort of run wild with the fact that, you know, while the budget kept going down for each of the sequels, their freedom basically increased. And so that really was kind of like, okay, I should be seeking out more sequels two films that normally maybe I wouldn't, but that's kind of like the beauty of doing the series reviews is I get to have people like you on, they get to share why a specific sequel stood out to them so much. Um, and, you know, I wrote a little blurb about it on uh, Letterboxd, right, with Psycho 2, and I described it as being a completely unnecessary sequel that is actually surprisingly really, really strong um, in terms of it, you know, being a sequel to probably one of the best horror films ever made. Um, so I suppose for you, like when you're going into sequels, whether or not it's supposed to, you know, be following up one of the best films ever made, um, what do you look, what do you look for in terms of like expectations or what are you sort of hoping that a director kind of continues uh, the legacy of the original one? Right. Um, well, you know, I, when I watched, um, when I watched this movie, it, I wasn't in the mindset of like, let's see, um, like, like let's, let's see them rise to the occasion. Let's they, they're going to have to top themselves or meet, meet the expectations of Alfred Hitchcock. Like, uh, it was like, oh man, I like psycho. I didn't know they made sequels. Um, and not even really, I didn't, I don't think I even clocked that it was the same guy. Um, my first watch because I was in high school and these were just like uh, I, I I discovered later in life that it's it's my ADHD that gets me obsessed about a certain subject so that's why I love a lot of those bad Halloween sequels is because <laughs> I love Halloween I get obsessed and then I watch all of them uh, and that was kind of the way it was with Psycho because I loved Psycho and I didn't even really think of Psycho as a horror movie and I don't think a lot of people do um who aren't like genre heads. Um, I, I feel like a lot of people think of it as like high art in this like Citizen Kane realm of uh, just classic movie making. Um, 
before the advent of like modern cinema with like Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese, all the guys in the seventies. But, um, it was really interesting because, um, I went into it, not really expecting anything, not with no expectations, no like, Oh, they've got a tall, like, Whoa, why are they doing this? What are you doing? Making a sequel to psycho. We don't need it. Um, and, uh, it's kind of funny cause you look at like reviews at the time of, with like, uh, Roger Ebert and he was kind of the same way. He was like, this is totally unnecessary, but it's better than it has any right to be. And he wasn't as positive on it as I am. Um, and I, I think, uh, I think people put rightfully so in a lot of cases, they put movies on pedestals that are untouchable and psycho, I think is that to many people to the point where they don't even know that this has a sequel. And I think, um, I don't think any movie is untouchable. I really want to see Paul Schrader's, it may, if like fabled taxi driver two script from 2010, like that's weird, but I want to see it. Um, and I, I think if you approach this as like, a sequel 20 years after the fact of like a horror movie. Like I'm trying to think of like 20 years, like what if they made a house of wax too? Um, house of wax pro didn't have the impact psycho, did at the time. Sure. <laughs> but I'm just trying to think like, what was a, like uh, saw, like they make another saw, but I mean, obviously they made a bunch of sequels to saw, but you know what I mean? Like I, it's not something that I think, um, I mean, as someone on the other end of it who loves Psycho too, like I don't think it even needs to be like don't watch the sequel, like hidden from history, because I think it is like, um, I think it's a, a phenomenal sequel to a phenomenal movie, and um, as far as like the ending goes, I think I'm, I'm of the school of Quentin Tarantino as if you don't like a movie because of a bad ending, then you don't like movies. Because, like, most movies have terrible endings. Um, and I, I I still appreciate the ending of Psycho 2 uh, for, for a reason we'll get into as the podcast progresses. But um, I think it also is this, like, really ahead-of-its-time progressive sequel that it believes in rehabilitation and, and was like... Like, nowadays, the big trend is here's the cast from the original movie from the seventies. And this is what they're up to 30, 40, 20 years later. Um, like that's Halloween. That's the new Halloween trilogy. That's the new exorcist trilogy. That was Texas chainsaw massacre. That was like a bunch of other movies that were like, Oh, Halloween was big. Let's do that for our franchise. And I'm sure we'll see it again. Um, scream, uh, five was exactly that, which was disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I uh, agree with you there. As someone who is a scream apologist, uh, it's that movie is such a fucking bummer. Um, but this movie did that before all of these ones, and I think it's like one of the few movies where I think it justifies it doing so. Whereas I don't think. Uh, even as someone who enjoyed that 2018 Halloween kind of likes the idea of returning to characters decades after. Um, I think this movie is the only one I can think of that really justifies it. 
Um, I haven't seen Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps or whatever it's called, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think this one is like put itself up to a monumental task in the slasher era where I'm sure Universal was just like, we need to make a slasher movie because Friday the 13th is huge and Halloween and Nightmare and this one I thought did it fucking really well. Like it, and like more than just a slasher, like it's kind of the slasher elements are kind of weird in the context of everything else. Um, so there's, there's my rant. I mean, I, (laughs) (laughs) I think it's, uh, that's my argument that people need to give it a shot. Um, and, uh, I mean, you can't top the original, the, the original psycho. It's one of those movies that like, sometimes I forget how good it is. Cause it's just oh, so parody. Every time I watch it, yeah. Every time I watch the original Psycho, I completely forget about the structure of it. How oh, yeah. you spend in the first hour with a character that's being propped up to be the protagonist, and then that doesn't end up being the case, right? Which is such a wild shift that I think really does cater towards Hitchcock's style of filmmaking, right? It's because that was his first horror film, but the first hour of that movie is a thriller that feels like it's built upon his sort of sensibility as a filmmaker for the past, you know, 20, 30 years prior to that. Yeah. Um, But I think, you know, what I was really impressed with, with Psycho 2, and you mentioned Quentin Tarantino, and I'm almost positive I have this right, that he prefers this film to the original, actually. Um, Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I think part of that, for my viewpoint, like you'd been talking about the legacy aspect of it, the legacy aspect is tied into the story in a way that is not why they make legacy sequels anymore, right? Legacy sequels are marketing, basically, marketing ploys to a certain extent for a lot of the films that you mentioned, right? Halloween, I would say, is probably the least egregious because it actually has a good amount of Laurie Strode in it and, you know, exploring her character and whatnot and what the past has been like over the the past, uh, whatever it was, 30, 40 years. But with something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre film you mentioned, the legacy aspect of that is so clearly tacked on because it's almost completely forget. It is completely forgettable. Oh man. Um, You you can see, you can see the like test screening edits (laughs) in that decision to add that legacy part. Like that was pretty wild. (laughs) But you know, to your point about this being a film that feels more progressive at the same time with some of the subject matter it deals with more specifically, Norman's sort of reintegration into society, I was sort of skeptical in the first few minutes because it's a bold decision to open up the film with the most memorable film, uh, most memorable scene from one of the most memorable horror films of all time, right? Which is not uncommon with a lot of the 80s horror sequels, right? They begin the first few minutes just with a recap of something from the previous film. So it's pretty bold to use Hitchcock footage in your film in the opening moments because it's like, kind of was going into this expecting, oh, this will just be sort of this cash-in sort of sequel or something where it's like, yeah, we're continuing this, but we don't need to. And so to lead with that, I was like, oh man, that's a bold move. But when you actually get into the film and you see that it kind of skirts and really does subvert the expectations, I think, for sequels of that time. And I would even say for now, right, when you're dealing with horror films, whether they're slashers or otherwise, um, and I refer to this one as like a psychological slasher, because I think that with this film, so much time is spent on Norman's psych- you know, mental state and whatnot and trying to decipher reality from his own sort of fiction. And the slasher aspect comes in just how gnarly the kills are in this, which 
obviously are going to be, uh, you know, improved upon from the original and whatnot, what they were able to get away with, the practical work and whatnot. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's the subverting of what you're expecting, which is a sequel that is bigger, that is bloodier, that is louder than the original. And he, they really don't go for that with this. And it's so much better off for it. Yeah, it's <clears throat> and, and it's like it, it's kind of funny because it opens with this scene of like probably the most iconic scene in cinema history. Like it's parody. They do commercials of it because everyone knows, Oh, it's psycho. They know the sound. They know the, the, all the, like the re re re. They know the Hershey fudge chocolate sauce going down the drain. Um, and, and, and for some reason, like I, I, this is the first time I watched it and I was like, I was like, oh man, like Janet Lee's kind of fucking sexy when she's dying. Like it's really weird. <laughs> like not the best. I mean, it's the '60s, so they they can't like go make her go eh, like really like sell it too hard. But I was like, when, when she's sliding down the 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 wall, I I I was like, oh wait a second, what if this wasn't like her dying? This was just her in the shower sliding down the wall. I'm like, oh, this is kind of hot. I'm like, oh, I, I gotta stop. <laughs> This is going to make me get like a knife fetish or something, but like it, it, it's really wild to open it with that scene um, because I, I don't, I don't think you need to. I think I, I don't, I, I think it's like, I, I wonder what the decision was behind including it because it's. I, I I always almost forget that it's also included at the beginning of the film. I, I always think of the beginning as in the courtroom. Um but uh yeah, it, it's just it's such a striking I don't know, like I, I'm I'm just like mesmerized by that. It was probably mostly just reflective of the era, right? Because a lot of these sequels began like that. It's sort of the type of thing where I think oh, they yeah, were terrified. They were terrified that people either just had a short attention span or they didn't want to alienate people that felt like they had to go. Because again, think also not to say that Psycho wasn't on, you know, home video and stuff like that, but I would be willing to bet that, you know, back in the eighties, maybe these things were not nearly as accessible as they are today. Right. Even from a video store uh, perspective and in other parts of the world as well. Right. I think you had that whole like video nasties era with censorship in the UK and these things and plenty of other countries you know, I don't know their history with censorship and film and whatnot, but I would be willing to bet there's some co- other countries out there that basically looked at some of these films and were like, we're absolutely not putting these on shelves. We're going to have, you know, the streets are going to fill with bodies if we release these types of movies. Um, but it is the thing also where you, people have a short attention span. You also have a movie that's picking up 20 plus years after the original. Um, and if you don't, you know, aren't able to kind of just turn on the TV and immediately watch it, you want to recap that scene does do a good job of kind of just capturing the essence of Psycho in a way that you really, I don't know, especially just with the legacy of Psycho back in the day, I feel like you can't not begin the movie like that. But from my perspective going in blind, I was just like, oh man, I don't know what to expect. And if you're going to start with this masterful scene, chances are this might go downhill pretty quickly because you're, you know, you're setting the bar pretty high. And again, it's that subverting of the expectations that I think really does allow Psycho 2 to shine in a way that really did catch me off guard. Yeah. Um, and I think to speak to some of the things that you've mentioned, 
like the very premise of how the movie begins, you know, he's able to uh, be released from the psychiatric facility. They've deemed that he is cured of his you know, temporary insanity. But what is supposed to be like the number one thing when people get released, they're supposed to have somebody that's checking in on them, whether it's a medical facility, you're having a doctor or someone check in on you or, you know, people that get released from prison, you've got a parole officer in these things. And the movie begins by saying that there have been cutbacks. So his doctor, Dr. Raymond, is the only one that can periodically check in on him, which right away is like condemning sort of the medical system or even the you know prison system, right? The idea that they're just kind of willy-nilly releasing people and then there aren't necessarily a lot of bridges for them to reintegrate. Granted, Norman has a job at the local diner, which is very convenient. But at the same time, like this is a guy that... <laughs> The guy that murdered seven people and it's like, oh, the doctor will check in on him periodically. But that's not really indicative of like a system that is actually keeping up with a lot of these people. Yeah. And um, I think um, I mean, he gets he gets a job because it's uh, someone vouches for him and says, hey, Norman, uh, this this kind old woman at the diner says Norman can work can work here let's let's give him a job and which is a plot device yeah <laughs> right yeah. If, that, if there wasn't that then who knows if he'd have a job granted he's got the motel but he's been locked up for a number of years who knows if he's able to run that on his own yeah yeah <laughs> or with the uh, person they hired and yeah the doctor um uh Dr. Raymond um played uh, I mean I I love Robert Loja like he's just mm. such a fucking iconic guy voice uh, he's in the fucking Sopranos for a bit, uh, in, in probably my favorite, um, uh, what is it? Uh, like not, not a, like just a small role. The, the old guy who k comes out of prison and then starts kicking up shit and, um, uh, Feech, uh, and then I don't want to spoil what happens to him. Anyway, we're getting off track. <laughs> I just watched the Sopranos and he, it's, it's in my mind, um, but Robert Loja, he he plays this doctor who is like, who really like you can tell he cares about Norman. Um, and and to your point about the med like the health situation in the country at that time, and um, I think like, uh, for it being such a progressive movie, it does paint the movie very well in that a lot of people just like aren't accepting of rehab. Um, and speaking of another like peek into mental health at a certain time in America, like the Sopranos is a good analogous. Anyway, that's the last time I'll mention the Sopranos. <laughs> um, it's fitting. Uh, Dr. Raymond, he, he really cares about Norman to the point where he's like checking in on him, like not on business, but on, you know, his spare time. And he's making sure that he's not being fucked with, uh, to which this doctor knows he's being fucked with. And basically becomes a detective to try to find out who the fuck is fucking with Norman. Um, and it's, it's like, a f for, for an 80s movie that is like, I, like it was billed as like a slasher. Um, it's like fucking tragic in like a way that, uh, like it makes me fucking sad every time, uh, <laughs> I watch it because, there, there. The characterization in it is just fantastic. It was written by Tom Holland, who went on to play Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, <laughs> uh, and uh, also create Child's Play and a bunch of other fucking phenomenal scripts. Um, 
And it's just such a bummer that I, I, all right, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. The point of the matter is, is that the characterization is so great. Like, um, the Toomey, the fucking, uh, the guy who runs the Bates Motel while Norman's away, but by Dennis Franz, he's such a fucking scumbag. Dennis Franz is like an ultimate scumbag. He gives a Hall of Fame caliber scumbag oh performance. Oh my god! Dude. Within the second that you see him and just the motel, and he's basically essentially turned it into a brothel, right? Because the Bates Motel location is like not even on a main highway. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. He's like, people come here to have sex and do drugs, Norman. Like, that's what they do here. Like, he's just such a scumbag in a way that just like, he exudes so well. Um, God, (laughs) Which is kind of fucked to say, but he does fill that role incredibly well. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a fucking dick, dude. Like, he gets, and he gets it, man. Uh, I, if, 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 well, I mean, I guess that's the whole like, whodunit nature of this story is that there's definitely uh is norman doing these or what's going on uh i i would have been like norman go ahead and fucking kill that guy that's the one i'll give it to you for free like but to your point right i think that that's what is so surprising and what makes this such a successful sequel that you can have somebody like quentin tarantino come out and be like i prefer this to the original because i think that this story is again far more complex than you would expect it to be and the way that it is structured Again, every single character is utilized in a way that makes sense, especially for it having this whodunit aspect of it where you're like, okay, either it's Norman kind of just going back to what he does best. It could be this guy Toomey that he immediately fires because, you know, he's not thrilled about Bates Motel being turned into a brothel. It could be the woman that, you know, is still pissed at him for murdering her sister, Lila Loomis, who, again, is like, it's so awesome that they got Vera Miles to come back for that. They got all these well, not all these actors. They got the actors you want back. Yeah. They got the fucking Bates Motel back. Like they, yeah. they did it, man. Like this was going to be a TV movie before they got Perkins to agree to come back for the role, which is wild to think. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess I suppose I do understand why maybe they were leaning in that direction, but at the same time, I mean, the fact that this turned out again, knowing the origin of it being like a made for TV movie and it wasn't going to have him attached. And then just finding out that this takes the complete opposite route that you think it's going to take. And then you get this star power attached to it. And you have who we haven't even mentioned yet. Dean Cundy is the cinematographer who makes everything look five times more expensive than it actually is. Like this was a $5 million movie. And I'd say it looks easily like 15 or something along those lines. Cause it is just, so much better looking and granted I'm sure he came on after they decided okay this is not going to be a TV movie but still like the fact that he's able to return to locations that we've already experienced in the previous film and just capture it in a new way giving it new life that makes it feel like it's almost the first time we've been in the house specifically like that is such a quality aspect to this and I'm sure we'll uh, talk about a few shots that we really appreciated but um, you know, also a character that gets introduced is Mary Loomis, who's the daughter of Lila Loomis, who's played by Meg Tilly, who Norman obviously works with at the diner. And, you know, he basically she becomes his uh, tenant, even though it takes a, a fair bit of uh, persuading uh, to get her to stay at his house and whatnot. Um, but again, like every character that's introduced, you can potentially see why they would be somebody that could be plotting against Norman or somebody that could be doing these killings to try to get him reincarcerated, right? 
The Loomises both have their own motivation for why they want to see him reincarcerated. You've got, uh, you know, Toomey, like we said. But then at the same time, you have this person coming back to a town that is full of people that, whether they've ever met him or not, hate him because of his infamous past, right? And it's funny, I know that you are a, a, such a huge fan of the film Halloween Kills, um, but <laughs> <laughs> that's an inside joke for people that don't know. But I was um, trying to remember which one that was, which which awful movie that was. <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when you think about it, like I have a point there. Like So in that film, the whole thing is that the entire town is fed up with Michael Myers. They want to kill Michael Myers. And then in Halloween Ends, right, essentially the town becomes the true monster, right? Because they inevitably take this kid that doesn't have anything to do with it, that was, you know, turned into a monster by the town due to an accident. But then the town themselves actually create him in being a true monster because of their, you know, vilifying him and whatnot. This film, like, has a similar quality to that, much smaller scale, right? The idea that they're playing around with this nature, the idea of like, well, Norman might actually not be doing these things. Maybe these people are actually inducing a new level of psychosis or causing him to regress through all of his therapy and whatnot over the years because they so badly want to see him become the killer that they can have reincarcerated or, you know, the police inevitably kill. And that is a really interesting aspect that I think really does lend itself to that whodunit sort of narrative that this film takes. Um, and ultimately, I would say... I don't want to get into like whether I think it's better than the original, but I think it's a far more complex and interesting story than the one that's in the original because the original, and it's not to, you know, take it to task or anything. There's a lot of beauty in that film for its simplicity. Um, but I think that ultimately this is the type of film that I would really prefer to watch from a structural standpoint, I suppose, narratively speaking, um, just because it's able to take all of those elements of the original and it really does throw it into this whole other subgenre, and it works, and it almost works better, I would say, to some degree. It's a more engaging film, specifically, you know, when you're building off of one of the biggest twists in cinema history, and you're able to still have another twist in the sequel that I would say almost does a better job at, you know, hiding the fact that you don't know who it is until the very end. Yeah. Um, well, I think I don't the know original if that's a hot take or not. <laughs> no, I, I, I think the original is like a victim of its own reputation um, because the the problem with the original is that when that movie first came out, and this is the reason why I wish I saw it. I wish I could erase my mind, time travel back to 1960 and see it in a theater. And the reason for that is that movie starts and uh, God, uh, Janet Lee's character. I'm, I'm totally fucking blanking on it right now. Um, she is in some trouble with money and she is running away from something. Um, and, and you're like, Oh, what's this? Oh, so this movie's going to be about like a guy chasing her. Like, what is this? What's going on? Like is like, what's this movie? And then she comes to this motel and no one knows who Norman Bates is. No one knows who the Bates motel is, um, who the Bates motel is. Uh, and it's, it's this mystery and it's, and then, you're right. It turns into this other movie where she's at this motel. It's like, wait, what's it, what is going on? And then she dies in the shower and then it becomes a whole other movie again. And it becomes this like really twisted pathway that is like leaving you super unnerved because you don't know what the fuck's going on. 
And I think that has just become so like ingrained in our pop culture that it's like, it's lesser for it, which is such, so unfortunate because even something like Citizen Kane, I think the big thing about Citizen Kane is everyone knows, uh, Snowbud, like, or Rosebud. I don't even fucking remember what it is now, but like, it doesn't have the same, like, everyone knows how this movie goes before they watch it thing. Cause now you watch Psycho. If you show it to someone who's never seen it, they go, Oh, when's this woman going to meet Norman Bates at the Bates motel? Like, <laughs> it's like totally undermining the movie itself. Um, and I agree with you, like Psycho 2, um, kind of flips your expectations on your head. It's, it's, and, and like, I, I think, I think I, we're allowed to talk spoilers. Absolutely. All right. All right. This is spoiler time. Like this whole movie, you are meant to question, like, is it Norman? Is it not Norman? Um, I never thought that I always knew it wasn't Norman. Like it just never, it, it never felt to me like it was Norman. It, it always felt, I think maybe if, if that's my one criticism, um, of the movie, uh, well, there are a couple criticisms of the movie. Um, is that like, it, 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 it seems very obvious to me that it's not Norman. Um, and just the, like, I mean, and, and also the, like, there are scenes where Norman is downstairs when something happens upstairs and that makes you go, wait, what's going on? And of course, horror movies do that all the time where maybe there's two people or, but like, it, it just, to me, it never seemed like Norman. I always believed in Norman. I was ready for Norman's recovery and, uh, uh, sadly, I mean, that obviously doesn't go that way. Um, it's tragic. Um, Mary is an incredible character who I love. One of my favorite horror characters. Um, I probably one of my favorite characters in a movie. Um, someone who it's a very like maybe classic tale of someone who is like, I guess befriending the main character to undermine them, but then ends up like becoming attached to the main character and seeing that they are a good person. And then that person's uh, boss, mom, sender, in this case, mom is upset with that. Uh, and in, in this case, the mom is trying to drive Norman insane by impersonating his mother, by um, killing people to make him think he's doing it. And, it's extremely fucking evil. Um, it, it to to use a term that's that's like used a lot these days. Uh, it is it's fucking an extreme form of gaslighting in like the most extreme, <laughs> crazy. Like this person is is just wants revenge, and they have not they've not let go of the past of this man who, um, was sick. Um, and was not accepting of the fact that he could get better, which to be fair, like if someone killed my brother, like, I don't know how I wouldn't go fucking trying to make them crazy again. So they kill <laughs> and go back to jail. But like, I, I don't think I'd be able to forgive them either. So while I don't sympathize with the fact that she's doing what she's doing, like I, I can't help but be like, man, that guy fucking killed my brother. And I, I could never forgive him. And I, I, I find it hard to, I, I don't know what the fuck I would do. Like if I saw that guy living his life, 
getting a second chance and being like, man, I would want to punch him in the fucking face. Even if he was completely rehabilitated, like those feelings I feel are valid. Uh, her actions aren't obviously. Um, and I feel like it's such a, such a beautiful contrast between Norman and his mom and Mary and her mom and how Norman's mom was extremely overbearing. Uh, and she was abusive to the point where it really affected Norman to the point where he killed her. And that further pushed him down the well. And this generational trauma that you see in a lot of horror movies these days and the Sopranos, uh, <laughs> um, and then you see what's happening with Mary and her mom, where Mary is being saddled with this this horrible trauma that never fucking happened during her lifetime. Like, it, it happened before her mom even met her father. Like, I mean, it happened because, like, they met because of it. <laughs> but um, it's just, so, it's like really fucking sad to see another mom become this obsessed, like manipulative person using her daughter to like, what get revenge on someone who wronged her. And, and it's like, and the daughter obviously isn't happy with it and she's torn and she tries to course correct and tragically ends up killing someone and then dying herself because of it. It's like, fuck dude. It, 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 and then they went too far. Norman was too far gone and fuck. Like it, it tears me apart. Like it, it's that, that man, <laughs> I, I've, I'm thankful I've had good parents and a good upbringing. <laughs> yeah, for real. God, dude, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Well, I think that that is, again, what is so surprising and so successful about the sequel is that each of these characters, more specifically, you know, the Loomises, you get to see their investment in what they're doing. And while you don't co-sign it, I feel that Holland and Franklin did a good job of at least getting us to understand why they would be doing the things that they're doing. And you understand, you understand from an emotional level how these people could perhaps get to this place, more specifically Lila, right? Um, because this event that destroyed her life, essentially, because this is what she's doing now, right? She's basically coerced her daughter, who this trauma fortunately never touched, but now she's making her part of this, you know, master plan for revenge, which essentially ends up dooming her uh, just as much as it dooms, you know, Lila to her fate. And I think that that's something that, again, you know, when you're talking about sequels, the fact that you're able to introduce these characters and reintroduce characters, but give them either this emotional weight in a very short period of time with a character like Mary, but at the same time with Lila, who, you know, in the first film, other than the fact that she's directly tied to the events because it's her sister who's murdered and she's searching for her, I don't feel we really know a great deal about her from that first movie, but we see the ramifications of the events that occurred in the first film that really do speak to why she is doing this. And you understand why she's doing it. But again, as you mentioned, it's difficult to necessarily co-sign it. 
Um, but I think that it's more important that you understand why they're doing these things. And while you may not agree with them, it ultimately does make her just as much a tragic figure because you see how, you know, Norman's actions have affected people that he didn't even kill, right? You get to see this generational trauma spiral out of control and affect a whole nother generation and whatnot. Um, and I think that that's a quality that really does lend itself to the whodunit sort of red herring filled nature of this mystery of who's actually behind these. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to take it back to in terms of the ways in which they're able to conceal who's actually behind this, there's one scene in particular that I came back to on this rewatch that I didn't pick up the first time, but I think initially, you know, Toomey is the first potential Norman uh, killer, right? And I think that, you know, they assume he's the one that put the note on the wheel, the order wheel, right? And at first I was kind of like, yeah, I don't really buy that he's the one that did that. But then there's a small shot where he puts his hand on the wheel while he's talking to Norman, the girl and the cook in the back. And I was like, oh, shit, is that a little moment where it's like, oh, maybe he's stealing the note back. And even though we know clearly he's not the killer by the end of the film, like little shots like that, I appreciate it because it helped conceal the mystery just a little bit longer. Um, and also, you know, there's a, a structural addition to the Bates house, which is the fact that there's a back staircase. And while I did really, really like those scenes where, you know, Mary thinks that or she does see somebody peeping through the people while she's in the shower and she assumes it's Norman. And then he kind of just like is downstairs really quickly and steps out of the room. I was thinking, oh, well, if there's a back staircase, she wouldn't have seen him run down the main staircase and then, you know, come around the corner really quickly. And, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't fundamentally change the course of the film. But I like that there are those little additions, whether it's from, you know, a scene with the character or even just the ways in which people get around that space that we're reoccupying again that do allow the film to mask its surprise a little bit more. Even if by the very end of it, it's the type of thing, well, nobody could have guessed who this person was that was actually the killer. Um, I still appreciate it for that because it's at least, you know, attempting to sweep up the breadcrumbs of your doubt rather than just it kind of being this facade that you see through immediately on a second and a third rewatch. I, th I mean, we, we talked about it previously. It's, it's a movie that I find like, very rewatchable, uh, more rewatchable than the original. Um, and I, I think the things that I, I love about rewatching this movie is noticing different choices, specifically that the actors make. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think, I mean, I, I, I don't want to be like a backseat director, but I don't, I, I, I like the third movie's style more. Um, but this movie, I like everything else oh, so much more. Um, and like the, the thing that stood out to me this time, I really like the part where, um, I'm trying to remember when it happens. Um, he says something like, uh, he's talking about cutlery and he like stutters over cutlery. Like mm -hmm. cut, like cut. Yep. And I, I love, I love that. Like it, it makes Norman feel kind of pathetic, like, and sad in a way that is like, ah, oh, man, it, it just breaks my heart. 
No, you know, I think that's a great example. And that was actually something that they wanted to cut, but then they decided like, oh no, we're going to leave that in because it does show that vulnerability, that uncomfortable nature with which he's trying to reacclimate within society, right? And, you know, Anthony Perkins coming back after and reprising that role after 20 years, it's the type of thing where it's like, okay, is he going to be the sort of same Norman that we saw at the very beginning of Psycho, right? When you have that first interaction, he's very polite, he's very awkward, he's kind of like stepping all over himself when he's speaking, but then he also has a little bit of an edge to him, right? When initially um, uh, Lila's sister says something about like committing his mother to an asylum and all of a sudden the politeness drops away and he kind of is like, why would I ever do that? That's like a horrible thing. Like he kind of pushes back in a way that it's like, oh, he was like hiding this other side of him almost, the side that just comes out. And I think that this film does a good job of picking up the, those pieces really and running with it, right? Because half of the time he is that sort of, again, that almost lovable, overly polite sort, I mean, at least in the first film, like kind of like this guy that does is clearly like a mama's boy, but some women find that like very cute and whatnot, which is why he's viewed as being this basically harmless guy. But then, of course, you know, we realize that that can't be the case. Um, but I think in this film, like that stuttering moment where he kind of trips up over himself and has that awkwardness or, you know, there's a moment when he confronts Toomey, right? And Mary goes up to the house and whatnot. And then he kind of like finds his backbone almost, right? Where he's just like, tomorrow, Mr. Toomey, you're out. Right. After he's been this very calm, very kind of awkward. We even see him at the diner when he's confronted with uh, or that might have been after. Um, but you see, like, again, he's flip flopping between this person that seems at odds with the rest of the world. But then this person that, like, has a little bit of an edge to them. And I thought that Perkins did a great job of, you know, after all those years coming back and retaining that and maybe even taking that a step further. Um, you know, he has a couple of, like, awkward little uh, ticks and whatnot. Like he like tilts his head a little bit sometimes when he's talking or these moments where he kind of just trails off or he kind of, again, takes it back to that old persona where I think when he's at the diner, he introduces himself to Mary for the first time. He's like, I'm Norman, Norman Bates, like just little moments like that of his wordplay and his word sort of construction or sentence construction. Um, it makes for a role that I think, yeah, you know, I, it's not like leaps and bounds different than the original, but it just feels more refined in a way that feels very natural to where his character is at in the second film. It would be a very different kind of character if he came out from the institution and is immediately like very hardened or something like that, or is completely, you know, reverted back to that adolescent Norman where it's like very awkward, very sort of overly polite at times and whatnot. It's there's some more nuances to this performance this time around that I think don't make it feel like it's too much of a retreading while at least being reminiscent of the time distinction between the two films. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It, it, he, he makes a very unnatural pop icon feel natural. Um, because something that happens to me every time I watch, um, like Bates motel or one of the, uh, non Perkins, um, psycho things, um, is whenever when, whenever someone says like like I was I was speaking on this earlier, um, with the original Psycho. Whenever someone says Norman Bates or Bates Motel, I go like that is like saying, like it, it's as weird as is like calling someone Batman in the real world or whatever. Like it it is like it is such a like 
striking combination of words that I can't help but go movie, fictional character, and that's something that I, I like Bates Motel, the show a lot, um, but when someone calls him Norman Bates, that, that makes me go, oh, psycho. Like, it, it makes you fucking remember that, oh, this is a franchise. This is a thing that has been around forever, and he this is not the original. This is bleh, setting off alarms in my head. That never happens in Psycho 2. Um, and, in fact, I, actually, I fucking love it when Toomey calls him, uh, go ahead, Psycho, go ahead, pick it up. Like, I, I, it's like, he fucking said it, but it's like, it's, it feels so fucking natural because everyone is just so well characterized and the actors are doing such a great job. Like, I think, like my, I think my favorite character in the entire movie is the sheriff, um, played by, uh, oh man, I had his name. He's, he's in Back to the Future Part 2. Uh, uh, Hugh Gillen. Hugh Gillen, right. Um, I have his name right here. Uh, he, he's fucking fantastic. Um, and he's in three. I don't know. Have you seen three yet? No, I haven't. Okay. So he, he returns in three. Um, and he, he, I love him in three more than in, in two. Um, in three, he, he's almost like, uh, it's more clear that he's like rooting for, for Norman to like live a normal life and for people to just leave him alone. Um, and I, th- there's my favorite line in the entire fucking movie is um, when um, Lila Loomis runs into the sheriff station is like yelling at the sheriff about Norman. And he's just like, oh, like, leave him alone. And and then she leaves. Uh, and Hugh Gillen says to Tom Holland, who plays his deputy, um, he says, uh, if Norman Bates is crazy, a lot of people around here are running him a close second. And I love that fucking line. Um, and a I, fantastic line. I actually don't think I understood it until this most recent watch. Like, I always thought it meant a lot of people are going to be watching him. But then, then I thought about it. Like, you know how you just hear things and you just, okay, yeah, people are just watching him. And it's like, wait, wait a second. But the actual, what he's actually saying is, no, Norman Bates, if he's crazy there are a lot of people who might be just as crazy as him. And you don't know that yet, especially with Lila Loomis, because you don't, you don't really see her. I don't think you see her character reveal at that point where you find out that she sent Mary and marries her daughter. Um, no, not yet. And then you're like, Oh fuck. She is out of her fucking mind. Like she, she's, yeah. <laughs> she's lost it. Um, and I just love that fucking line. It's so good. Whoever, uh, Tom Holland, you're a fucking genius. Uh, and Hugh Gillen, what an incredible delivery of that line. And I think he like nods his head, like kind of like he just said, he just sang a song and he just ended it. It's, it's so musical. I don't know. I, I like it a lot. Um, uh, and what were we talking about? I got sidetracked. Oh, we were talking about Norman Bates, like to Anthony Perkins, his fucking performance in this movie. He's, he's fucking Norman Bates. Like that is, it's not him playing himself you know like so many i feel like uh like ewan mcgregor in the star wars prequels playing alec guinness playing obi-wan kenobi and i like like don't hate me star wars fans i i don't fucking like those movies but i like ewan mcgregor i think he does a great alec guinness impression and i i like him in other movies too 
Um, but that 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 performance not on his not by not not on his fucking back or anything, but it's not a great performance. Like I mean, George Lucas is at fault for that. He's not a great director, but like Anthony Perkins just feels so fucking natural and real and he he loses it in psycho 3 but this is just such a fucking perfect encapsulation of a guy that um oh, okay there are some good parts in psycho 3 where i'm like man i love you norman but man i i love these movies like i i i, I fuck it i anything i've said bad about psycho 3 i still love it like there are things from in that movie that are so weird and it's like so gross and sleazy but it's it's there's some really beautiful moments in that movie and i think tony perkins is like wholly responsible for this movie deserving to be taken as seriously as it does and deserving to be held up to the the heights that you and i are talking about right now like he's he's totally he he it's not like he put this movie on his back. Like this movie didn't need someone to carry it. Uh, it's a great cast, great writing and great cinematographer. But he, he really is, is the fucking glue that just carries it. And he, I, I love Norman, man. That's why the ending is so fucking devastating to me. Well, that I think, you know, last thing I'll say about Anthony Perkins performance is that, he does an incredible thing, right? You go into this, you know, you know, the twist, you know, everything about the original film and he's able to make this serial killer empathetic, right? Or at least derive empathy from the audience and be like, damn, this guy's trying to get it all back together. You know, the legal system deemed that he could be freed. And by all accounts, what we've seen, he's trying to live as normal of a life as you can after you kill seven people. And which is like hilarious thing to say out loud, but it's the type of thing where it could have very been easily been. He comes back and it's like, yeah, man, like he's not able to capture that old side of Norman that we first see in Psycho. And he so effortlessly, it seems, is able to dance between the sort of the portrayal of Norman that he put out there to, you know, get his victims within arm's reach of him and then did what he did. But at the same time, like, he makes you forget that periodically. And I think that it's an incredible, you know, accomplishment on his part and the writer's part. The fact that they're able to, again, make this character that by all accounts, you are like, well, he's going to become a killer eventually again, but not until that final moment are you given that definitive proof and you're rooting for him almost to a degree uh, up until that final moment. Um, but I think I want to talk a little bit about you know, how Franklin handled the carnage in this movie uh, and specifically the kills, right? Because that's why when I describe the original film, I describe it as a psychological horror film. And this one I would refer to as a psychological slasher because there's a nastiness to the kills in this film. And I would say that there's only about three, I would say two acts, two kills and one act of violence that actually is like memorable, right? I still can't get over the fact that like Toomey's the first to go and he has the quickest death and it's the most forgettable uh, after the teenager that's in the basement that gets killed because it's just, it's too fleeting. The guy is such a scumbag. I want to get a more intimate death scene or more brutal death scene with that guy, but it's like very fleeting. 
and then it cuts away the, pretty the, quickly. The fa- yeah, the fake head splits open. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's such a goofy looking scene. I love, I but like, I would take that over a CGI head getting sliced any oh, day yeah. of the week. It it It's like, man, they actually sliced, they made a head that looked like fucking Dennis Franz and they fucking sliced yeah. it. <laughs> and then and it opened up and then it cut away because it looks really bad <laughs> yeah uh well, i i love it oh man well i think that the most satisfying and the most brutal kill that is definitely more reminiscent of an 80s era slasher with the level of nastiness and the practical technicality of it is when lila loomis finally oh, yeah. gets it in the basement right and satisfying she with a butcher's knife right in the mouth and not only is it right in the mouth but then you get to see it go through the back of her head which is just i mean i gasped literally when that kill happened because it is so shocking and it's again it is a quality of psycho 2 that i think you know it benefits from it being removed from the era that the original was in right because if this was a film that had been made in you know, the decade, or I would say even five years after the original, even maybe if you were getting into the 70s, right, you wouldn't be able to pull off a kill like that, probably. And the fact that, you know, it is staying very true as a whole, the film itself, to Psycho, and that sort of framework that Hitchcock created for it, you know, it's not afraid to be cognizant of the styles and more importantly, you know, the trends of the genre for the era it was released in. Um, and I think that, you know, between that and also Dr. Raymond's death, right? It's bad enough he gets stabbed by Mary accidentally, but then he falls down the stairs oh. and lands on the knife and it's it has That's a the nasty, worst part in the movie. <laughs> yeah, a nasty sort of just like he's not only getting stabbed, but the knife is basically going to go through him, uh, which is just like this very extreme act of violence that didn't need to be that extreme. But it is, you know, fitting, I find, for, again, when this film was released. God, that sucks, too, man, because that that Dr. Raymond kill, like, Dr. Raymond is just trying to help. So is Mary. Like, Dr. Raymond doesn't understand what Mary's doing, because why would you? And uh, for everyone, I mean, she's dressed as Norman's mother, trying to convince him to not be tricked by who she thinks is her mom on the other end of the phone. And she's like, I'm your mother. Don't do it. And like, she's, she's trying to help. And then it goes terribly wrong. And it's like, Oh no, she's like, Oh no, he fell. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) of course you have to have a guy fall down the stairs. It's psycho, but Holy shit. (laughs) He goes over the handrail and the knife goes, just lands on the knife. It's like the worst. Oh my God. It's so bad. But I think that that speaks to just, again, the sort of tragic nature of the film, right? The person that is trying to uh, advocate for Norman the most ends up getting it. The girl that basically was in on the gaslighting has a change of heart and basically tries to redeem herself. And she gets and she ends up taking the rap for all of the murders, right? Because the police show up and basically she's stabbing Norman, who basically gets like stigmata oh, on that both part, hands. And then that, that scene with him grabbing the knife blade and she pulls it out oh. is, pro- is probably the second most brutal moment of the film because that makes my skin crawl yeah, dude. every time. Uh, but like, again, like, and then in her act of trying to redeem herself, she falls further down that rabbit hole of just like, okay, she's killed one person. Now she's in the throes of killing somebody else, especially when she realizes that uh, her mother's dead and she blames that on Norman as well. And then the deputies and the police show up and shoot her. 
um, and it's lights out for her, which again is like this very tragic caper to the entire film. Because again, you're kind of like, okay, he's being gaslit and whatnot. And then the people that are advocating for the advocating for this guy that more or less is incapable of because of his reputation, all of those advocates are dead. And yet Norman comes out on top, which is like this kind of almost like a cruel joke, right? He hasn't been responsible for these things. But the guy that has, you know, has that reputation all of a sudden is viewed in the eyes of the community now is like this person that, you know, got caught up in a situation that they actually didn't have anything to do with. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> it's so heartbreaking. Um, <laughs> but I think like Norman's like his turn. Uh, I, I want to pitch you my ending for psycho two. Remind, remember that, but the, the ending in psycho two where like, all right, the movie probably should have ended and we're sitting here and then the the kindly old lady who got him the job at the diner shows up and he's like, oh, I've been waiting for you. She's like, and then she goes, your mother was my sister and you're, I'm your real mother. And it's like, all right, we, <laughs> come on, we didn't need this. I mean, I know there's stuff we need to kind of wrap up because there was definitely someone skulking around, but like, this is, this is fucking silly. Um, and then, and then as she's going through the motions <laughs> Anthony Perkins sneaks up behind her with a shovel and hits her over the head <laughs> and her fucking he hits her so hard that the chair breaks <laughs> it's almost like a three stooges bit oh yeah dude and every I, I don't think there's ever been a time where I am not keeled over laughing at that scene I, I think every time I rewatch this movie I rewind to watch that part again and as much as I hate the ending, that ending, the fucking shovel is like, you know what? Worth it. It was worth it just to watch Anthony Perkins hit an old lady over the head with a shovel. Yeah, you know, I don't think the ending is good, right? I think it's a pretty bad ending. They yeah. basically, within the last three minutes of the movie, they're like, we have to have an explanation for this. They present the real killer who... You could never have guessed, which kind of irks me because, you know, it's like if you're going to do this who done it and fill it with these people that are all viable, when you kind of like pull that ace out of your sleeve and be like, "Haha, it's this person." You would never have guessed. It's kind of like, "Well, well fuck you. What's the point of this mystery then if I could never like a good mystery, it's like you're picking out the clues and whatnot." But then again, when I come back and I rewatch the film for a second and the third time, I'm like, "90% of this is constructed so well." Am I going to get hung up about that last 10% that like you understand? Again, it's kind of a byproduct of the era, I think, yeah. where it's like you are a lot of these types of films back in the day. I was like, yeah, they just kind of threw this person out there, had an explanation. They left it open for the potential of a sequel. But I th really do think what sells that ending is the way that the it really does wrap up, which is the fact he carries his real mother's body up the stairs and it restarts this entire cycle over again where he's carrying her up the stairs. He puts her in the room. And when he goes into the room, he starts doing the voice of her again, right? Where it's like he's carrying on a one-sided conversation with the dead body. And, you know, don't I put me in my chair and I want to be able to see what you're doing and all these things. And like that, I think, is the important part of the ending that feels necessary. Perhaps the whole, oh, it was actually my... Your the fake mother was uh, your aunt, that type of thing. I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. 
But like the fact that it ends on that, I think is why I can stomach the lackluster nature of the ending more so because of that, because it's not this kind of thing where it's like, there's definitely going to be a sequel. It leaves it open for the, the potential to be a sequel because the cycle is repeating, which if we never got another one, I'd be like, that's a fitting ending that last 90 seconds. Um, it's kind of just it being the most ham fisted element of the film that is not my favorite, but at the same time, it's not going to make me kind of view it as like a detriment to the overall film. Cause so much of this film is so strong. And oh just, yeah. Again, like the fact that it's as good as it is and really does have no right to be again, um, which you keep saying, but then it's like, once you watch the film, you really will understand like why it is uh, far more remarkable than I suppose people of the period gave it, but it, you know, hopefully more and more people are going to, uh, you know, get hip to the fact that the second Psycho film does a pretty damn good job, I think, at continuing that legacy. Um, and if anything, it kind of bums me out that Frank Richard Franklin went on to make maybe like three or four other genre films, and I can only speak to have seen one of them, uh, and the other ones I haven't seen. But like, I feel like this should have been the primer for him to have a very successful career in America whether it be genre films or otherwise. Um, you know, I recently watched randomly his prior film to this, which was called Road uh, Road Games, which is kind of like dual, this cat and mouse sort of thing that actually had Jamie Lee Curtis in it. Um, that was really, really cool. It was a nice take on that sort of dual framework, but it has a lot more of an intense sort of quality to it um, that it has a serial killer in these things. And I was just like, oh man, between that, this... And he did a sequel to a movie called FX that I thought was okay, but he just seems like he should have been a filmmaker that was more prolific than he was. Um, and it's kind of, I guess, I suppose it's great that, you know, we got Psycho too. but at the same time, I was like, man, if he was able to do this with one of the most beloved, if not the most sort of famed horror IP in all of the genre, imagine what he could have done with so many other types of films. Um, and the fact that he was also, you know, a co-writer on it, um, just kind of speaks to that guy's talent that uh, unfortunately didn't flourish too much outside of, I think he did one film in like the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, well, he, he he did Cloak and Dagger, which is kind of a, like, I, I've i never seen it I from what, I mean, I know people who have seen it. And it seems like a very like, listen, if you weren't a kid during the 80s and you weren't like specifically interested in what it's about, like you're you're not going to, it's not a classic. Um, sure. Although I know some people do like, I, I, I think of it as like, this might be totally unfair. Maybe I should watch it. Cause I, I do like road games and I do like psycho too. Um, but I, I, I always think of it in the same vein as like Tron, which I love Tron, but like mm. that watching that original movie is, is like really hard because yeah, <laughs> the tech, the technology of it is so like ingrained. Um, but it's I'm probably being a little too harsh on it. But he also made Link, which is like I, I think it's like an internet meme amongst like a small niche of horror fans. Is it's it's got the weirdest poster, and I've just seen people talk about it. It's about like a crazy chimpanzee. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's like the most bizarre poster. Uh, it, it's 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 weird. I might have to watch that just based on the poster alone. Um, oh, I have it queued up after watching this. Oh, hell to, yeah. Uh, I have it queued up. I definitely want to dive into that. I love me a good uh, a good creature feature. And 
specifically um, Richard Franklin fan. Yeah. Now after seeing this in road games. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I always liked, I, I always wonder like, what would the director do um, if he was in a different era? Because obviously um, I'm sure, well, who knows if this movie would, I, you know what? I, mm, who knows if it would be successful now? I feel like if, if it was now it would be, um, I, I, I've changed my tune on the term elevated horror and the type of movies that, um, that are lumped into it. Like I, I, I definitely don't, I still don't like some of the movies that fall into elevated horror, um, that feel like they are not really horror movies, but I, I, I was listening to Ari Aster speak about them. So I, I've changed my tune. I'm just saying that for the record. Cause I know I've, I've gone, I've gotten pretty heated about like, certain certain elevated horror movies that are just kind of lame um i feel like this would fall into that now if it was made today um like especially with the whole rehabilitation it probably well maybe it would still end the way it ends but maybe more subtly um but you want to see guys like him you know thrive and in an era where it, it wasn't like Sure, there was indie filmmaking, but, like, it was in an era where th this movie came out in, in a time when, like, Martin Scorsese was having a hard time, and the 80s were not a super awesome time to be a movie director, um, and, like, it, it sucks, man, you, you, you want to see guys create stuff, but, uh, hopefully, like, hopefully he knows that, like, a lot of people fucking love this movie, um, and road games, for that matter the thing right i think that ultimately this is now one of my core examples when people talk about you know sequels and whatnot and the fact that sequels are just cashing in on the original idea but they're trying to do it bigger and bloodier and whatnot and it's like no you can actually take the core concept of the original film and give it a spin that the original film never really had the inclination to or even if it did you can do it in a way that is either more complex or it's adding other subgenres and kind of making this really interesting cocktail for a narrative that really does capture the essence of the original, but it's giving it just a more heightened version of that. Um, and I think that also, you know, this stands out as, and it's to your point that I, you know, view it in this lens now, um, the fact that this is really a fantastic example of a legacy sequel before that was a hot concept, right? The fact that they do bring back these people 20 plus years later, and it's not a marketing ploy. I'm sure, you know, we clearly know from the uh, origins of this that it was going to be a TV movie and then it became a feature because of the fact Perkins came back. But the fact that you get Perkins, who is doing it better than he ever did it at that period, and then you also have Vera Miles that came back and adds so much more complexity and heartbreak to that character, right? You felt for her in the original film, obviously her sister's murdered, but if anything, you view her as being this tragic figure in a whole new light because you see how it's completely ruined her life. And it's not just one scene like it is now kind of with some of these legacy sequels. It's her entire inclusion feels so integral to the story, to the mystery, to everything that unfolds that it you don't even question like whether it's justified in its inclusion. It, when you think about this film and just overall the cast of characters that are here, they all play such a major role in more ways than one um, that it just it makes for a film that 
yeah, you know, I think that people over the last 10 years or 15 years or whatnot have probably come around to this a little bit more, you know, thinking about you know, conversations on Letterboxd and film Twitter and these different things. But um, it's a shame, though, as you were saying, you know, you just hope that Richard Franklin realized at the time or, you know, until he uh, unfortunately passed in, uh, I think, the mid early 2000s, um, just, you know, how successful he was at taking on this monumental task that seemed like, how could it not fail when you're, you know, trying to follow up Hitchcock, right? That's a tall order. Those are some big shoes. And uh, I think this film more than, you know, justifies its inclusion in the series. And I really can't wait to dive into three and four, uh, especially because, you know, what you were saying about three with Perkins directing, but also just it being uh, the more stylized of, I think you said your favorite entry uh, in from a style standpoint. Um, so I'm really excited to kind of dive into that and just see what that even looks like. Right. Um, especially, I believe that was his first time directing too. him taking on that monumental task of trying to, you know, fill these now two pairs of massive shoes uh, and it being his first uh, endeavor. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> pouring out for Richard Franklin, pouring out for Tony Perkins. Um, yeah. Phenomenal film. Um, I, so I wanted to say my idea for an ending, which I, I have always wanted to, uh, reshoot this, like take a time travel and be like, guys, I've got the best idea for an ending. <laughs> and they're like, who the <laughs> fuck are you? Um, I really, really, really think it should have ended before the last scene. Um, listen, I, I love the shovel hit. It's probably my favorite thing in the movie. Kinda. It's, it's really funny. Um, but I would have, I would have had, um, you know, Mary gets shot, um, by the police. And then you go to the police station where Norman is with his hands and it's all, they're all fucked up. Um, and he's sitting there in police station and it kind of just stays on him. And then you see a fly flying around the police station. And then eventually that fly lands on his hand and he kills it. And then it goes to black and that's it. That's all you need. That would have been very, very fitting. Yeah. That's all you need. Cause, cause I think at least you have the, I mean, listen, I know a lot of people love that Norman is back. <laughs> like this is I've I've been I wanted to address this because I know a lot of people love that Norman is back and it is this like super like yeah Norman's back baby um <laughs> but like God it it kills me that he's back I I I wanted him to to lead a happy life um and I. I, I don't get my wish, but I, I would love an ending that is uh, more ambiguous in its 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 ending. Like I I think obviously I'm I'm referencing Norman's whole mo inner monologue about not hurting a fly in the police station to show that oh he wouldn't do um he wouldn't hurt a fly he's a good person we'll let him go um and which is really creepy. Like it's, it's such a fucking good shot. Dude, the cinematography in the first psycho is, is phenomenal. And, and that's kind of what I is missing from like Dean Cunningham does a really great job at making this look better than it would have, but I would have loved a director that would have had him be more, um, be more like 
how like be more like Dean Cundey from Halloween or or the thing where it's it's more there's there's more I don't know there's a certain je ne sais quoi about it or something like that um because like I think like one of my favorite scenes ever in in movie history is when Norman is talking to Janet Lee and um it's it's super subtle but uh, the camera looks down on her and up on Norman, and Norman has that fucking owl, that predatory bird above him that's so creepy, and and it's just this tense dialogue scene. That's literally just like going back and forth, but it's it's it, and that that would have been an insane fucking moment to see in the theaters, not knowing where the movie was going or what the fuck was going on. Um, like that would have been so tense and creepy. Um. And and I and I would have loved that in this movie, um, but that that last scene where she he he's got his inner monologue and it's mother's voice and they're talking about not killing a fly like I I think that would just be like such a poetic moment, and I and I'm 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 fucking romantic about this weird shit, but like I love the idea of like did he kill the fly because he's a killer again or did he kill the fly because it's it's that's what you do when it lands because he's you. human yeah yeah it's like what is and then that leaves you with this like like what leaves you like the fucking ending of the Sopranos you're not sure what's gonna happen next and it's uh I, and really I I this is a stealth podcast to talk about the Sopranos I got you I've never seen <laughs> Psycho two I read a synopsis um no but I I. I, I love this movie and even even with its ending like we we you and I uh, if you especially if you're a fan of horror you gotta be forgiving of endings that just don't land they're common enough and specifically when again like keep coming back to this they're a byproduct of the era in which they were made yeah the and fact it's that hard. they made a sequel to psycho is you know amazing that it was even able to come to fruition right and the fact it was this good, I'm able to forget, we're able to forgive that an ending that is, you know, a little lackluster, but you at least can start to see, you know, the studio interference, I suppose, of how it was orchestrated and of why it came about. Um, and I think ultimately your idea is far better. Uh, again, like the ambiguous nature of it, but <laughs> I think, um, you know, the ambiguity oh, specifically for like it. genre films would have killed audiences in 83 and whatnot. Yeah. I wonder, yeah, I, 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 I love reading reviews of like different eras. Um, oh my God. It, it, and <laughs> I wonder, I yeah, people would have fucking hated the movie if it didn't end <laughs> with, uh, that classic Norman and Mo mother in the window. Um, mm. I, I'm actually like really, really curious what you'll think of the next psycho movies because, um, uh, there's something that's just so stupid in Psycho 3 that I thought of um, when we were talking about a specific element in this movie that is pretty stupid. And it's like, it almost makes it worse because it's like, dude, just stop. <laughs> like, we, like it, it, you didn't need this in the movie, in this movie either. We, we it's so dumb. Um, but th there's, there's still so much to love about Psycho 3 and, I, I don't think Tony Perkins is as good, but I, I still think there there are moments where you still see that Norman and you still love him and uh it's it, it's it's a fucking trip, man. And then Psycho Four is so fucking weird. Um that was a t made for TV movie that um 
it was uh it was it's a very interesting movie um it, it kind of goes between like norman as a kid and norman as an adult and it's all framed in this like radio interview um hmm. it's interesting i like it it's pretty fucking silly um <laughs> but uh i i, I th- i'm excited to hear what you think because it's it's a wild series and then there's like three different bates motel tv series there's some other tv movie stuff yeah i saw that there's i just added an extra entry to the series review because i saw there's a bates motel made for tv movie that doesn't have anthony perkins in it um and i think that one that one might just be uh might just be a solo review of me having a couple cold ones and then just ripping on the fact that Anthony Perkins isn't in it. But no, man, you definitely have made me excited to, and just in revisiting the original and then watching obviously Psycho 2 for the first time, I'm super excited to dive into the later entries because those are the ones that clearly are the ones that have, you know, not, I don't really want to say like, don't have the same level of love as Psycho 2 does. But at the same time, I would imagine those are the ones that, have not been seen as, you know, often, if you will. And so I just find when I'm viewing series, you know, once you start getting into the weeds, perhaps of those, you know, especially with something like this, where it's like, I think it, you would technically say this is four sequels and then there's TV movie and remake within the four sequels, right? The further that you get to the end, they're going to start to be sort of reminiscent of the reality of like, okay, they knew that these films were not going to have the same types of audience and box office return or even just financial return on home video sales and these things. So they're going to get more experimental to try to, you know, basically uh, find some new angle on them. And while that new angle or that new approach can often be pretty rough at times, I think also you start to see that like glimmer of creativity that certain creatives have. The fact that you have, you know, Anthony Perkins doing the third film, not a filmmaker by trade. So you get to see, you know, his interpretation of Psycho with a very, you know, by all accounts, limited skill set from behind the camera. But he's also somebody that's been there since day one. So he's going to have an interesting perspective on how you're going to tell this story. At the same time with Psycho 4, you know, he steps back just primarily in front of the camera and you have Mick Garris, who is a genre filmmaker of some acclaim at that point behind the camera again. So like, I'm really excited to kind of dive into the rest of it. And even if perhaps uh, they don't have the same sort of fanfare that Psycho 2 does, I'm more open-minded to appreciating later sequels for what they're able to accomplish that the original creatives could never even imagine or even necessarily want to have happen with their IP. But I just find that that creativity that filmmakers have down the line, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years removed from an original is what I find interesting about sequels. And, you know, same could be said for reboots, remakes, and reimaginings. Um, so yeah, man, I'm really, really excited to dive into the rest of this. And I love to get into pick your brain about Psycho 2, uh, you know, especially somebody as enthusiastic about it as you were, because uh, I think definitely, you know, on uh, Letterboxd, I gave it a three and a half. And I think after talking with you, I'm going to bump that up another half star to four because uh, it's a sequel that I think is even to this day, not given nearly enough credit, given those monumental shoes it had to fill. And I think in some regards, it maybe even uh, outsteps the original from a narrative standpoint, because it's just, it's taken a massive swing and it's connecting more often than it's not. So uh, yeah, Yeah. as always, man, it's it's such a pleasure having you on the show to chat. And uh, I'd love for you to plug your podcast before 
uh, I let you go because I always have a great time whenever I'm on there and, you know, obviously listening every week. And uh, I think people that enjoy this show would really enjoy uh, what you guys got going on over there at Nuclear Fridge. Yeah, it's it's three friends who get together every week. We talk about uh, mostly movies. Um, right now we're we're working on a, um, a series of podcasts that are like, it's not as cool or organized as the, the daily horror habit, but it, it's basically us writing a movie script. Um, and, uh, we are going to make it at some point. Um, this, this is something that, uh, me and Jake, um, have talked about a long time wanting to make a movie together since we both worked at GameSpot. Um, and Stuart is our good friend and someone who is also super passionate about movies. The dude has seen so many fucking movies. Uh, it's frustrating because <laughs> you, you watch a movie and you're like, oh, this is a really cool movie. And then Stuart's like, oh yeah, I own the deluxe box set edition that only released 12 units in 1997. I'm like, what the, <laughs> how the fuck do you own? Like, so he, he's just a, an encyclopedia of movies. Um, and, uh, we, we want to make a movie. I think we're doing like, uh, uh, it's, um, there doesn't have a title, but like I've been thinking sleeper sleep. It's about sleep paralysis and demons, um, and evil organizations. If you want to, if you want to hear the process, um, that I find incredibly uncomfortable doing in front of a microphone and putting it on the internet, like, oh man, it's the worst. Like I, I, I stammer more. <laughs> if you think I stammer a lot in this podcast, just wait till you hear me like pitching ideas to my friends and being vulnerable, not only to my two friends, but also to a bunch of people who are going to hear my stupid ideas um, <laughs> or shoot down good ideas because I'm like, ah, maybe, uh, no. And then after I'm like, oh, fuck, that was actually a great idea, Stuart. I'm like, we can't, we, oh, we're doing buttons. We're doing buttons. Um, so it, it's fun. Um, and, uh, I, I hope, I hope you like it. Um, I'm, I'm now going to go to letterbox and change my four star review to a five star because, um, <laughs> I don't know that this is my favorite fucking thing to do is talk about movies to people who love movies and, uh, specifically friends who love movies. Cause I, I definitely don't want to talk to random people. Um, <laughs> but you, you gain new love for things that, um, I don't know. That's, that's a great thing about movies. You watch them again and again and you go, man, there's so much shit in here and I fucking love all of it. And the more you watch, the more I talk about movies, the more my feelings really come out. And this, this is why I love coming on this podcast. We've talked about a couple really awesome movies. Um, I think, is this my first non Rob zombie episode? <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, you're awesome. right. Awesome. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, we got we got to have more of those. I love Rob Zombie, but I want I want to branch out. Uh and we're going to have you on the nuclear fridge soon. So, uh I don't know when this comes out, but uh you'll Jay will have been on or will be on the nuclear fridge by himself, not talking about horror in an exclusive interview, non-horror episode of the nuclear fridge. <laughs> Well, I can say that this will go up the same day that I'll be on the nuclear fridge. So oh, fuck if you're yeah. coming, if you're coming to this uh, and you enjoyed uh, our chat on Psycho 2, I will be on the nuclear fridge that you can listen to immediately after finishing this one. Um, but yeah, man, no, I, I champion what you've been saying. Um, you know, it's that's my favorite part of the podcast, right, is that I get to have people on that, you know, either 
share a love of a film that I already have, or, you know, I was coming to this brand new. And if anything, chatting with you and you getting to pick your brain about it and hear your insight into it uh, made me appreciate it even more so. And I think that that's the beauty of uh, having conversation about movies that, you know, is not just in text on Twitter or Letterboxd, right? Some, a lot of the time, that's not necessarily a very conducive way to uh, have a conversation about film or anything in general. Uh, so that's always been my favorite part of the podcast. That's why I keep doing it. And uh, yeah, definitely look forward to having you back on in the future to chat about uh, more horror films and whatnot, man. All right, man. Yeah, super stoked to do it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.